0: I listened once to a sermon of Billy Graham, where he talked about different kinds of hell on earth. He talked about the the hell of guilt. He said many people have done wrong or are doing wrong, and they know they are wrong, and they feel as though they are living in a hell of guilt. They are trapped. In the hell of guilt, they feel there is no way out. There is nothing they can do to remove their guilt. They don't know and they desperately need to know. Jesus can save them and remove their guilt. He talked about the hell of unrest. Many in our world today have no peace and no sense of purpose. They move through life being tossed about by uncontrolled passions Whether it be pride, envy, malice, lust, ambition, or revenge. They move through life in a perpetual state of unhappiness. Something is always wrong in their lives or in their world. They're constantly tossed about by them. Probably often many of these people move about from place to place. Searching for something that would bring peace into their life. But this peace always eludes them. They are in a a hell of unrest. And they don't know but desperately need to know. Jesus can save them from this hell and give them peace. He talks about the hell around us. The hell around us is the hell-like conditions people often find themselves in while living in this world. Sometimes the hell is self-imposed by living in things like greed, hatred, or addiction. These confine a person to a hell of their own making. The hell around us also includes hell-like conditions imposed upon us because of the actions of others. The hell of an abuse victim, the hell of those caught in the crossfire of war, the hell of those living and starving in poverty. And they don't know and they desperately need to know Jesus can save them from this hell and give them freedom and hope. Graham says as bad as those hells are, and they are bad, there is a worse hell. And it is the hell of the future. The hell of the future is the final judgment of God on those who have rejected Jesus and resisted his rule in their lives. Hell is the theme of the passage we're going to study today. Now, many in our day... Reject the truth taught in our text, some because it's so strong, some because it's so hard, some just because it's it's really, really clear what is being said. They reject it, saying the one who said turn the other cheek would never be in favor. The kind of judgment and punishment we see here. They say the one who said love one another as I have loved you would never be Be in favor of the kind of judgment and punishment we see here. And yet, Jesus spoke of hell more than any person in the New Testament. The Greek word most often translated as hell is the the Greek word gehenna. It's found 12 times in God's word, always translated as hell. And of the 12 uses, Jesus used it 11 times. Hell is real, hell is horrible. Hell is the final judgment against unbelieving rebels. So let's look and see what the Bible has to say about that. Open your Bible to Revelation 20, verse 11 is where we're going to start. That's page 961. If you've got a pew Bible and you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the the reading of God's Word. Revelation 20 and 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence the earth and the heaven had fled and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to them, each one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown to the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found, written in the book of life, he was thrown to the lake of fire. title of the message today is Judgment Day. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You're great and glorious, wonderful and worthy. We come with a desire to know. Father, the lesson we're going to learn in this today, Lord, just what we see in this passage, it is hard. It is uncomfortable. It is unpopular. And yet it is true. Father, the temptation for many will be to push this away and just reject it out of hand because it's not pleasant and it's not a comfortable thought. But Lord, if this is true, if this is real, then there is not much in life that is more important than we pay careful heed to what you have said to us in this passage of Scripture. Father, there may be some in here today that have never trusted in Jesus and their name is not in the book of life. They must hear this. They must be alarmed by this God. They must be challenged and convicted by this. But those of us who would say we are, Saved, Our names are in the book of life. Father, we all know people who aren't. We all have loved ones. And their names are not in the book of life. And this speaks about them and their future as well. Alarm us as well. Disturb us. Disturb us, Lord, when we've been callous about the lostness of the world around us. Disturb us, Lord, when we've been flippant about the judgment to come. Disturb us, Lord, when we've had opportunities to talk to people about Jesus, but we turned away for whatever reason. Disturb us, Lord, for not being clear that Jesus is the only path. It's not enough to be a good person. It's not enough to be religious. must repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Disturb us all today. Do a work in our heart through your word. Do a work of saving those who are lost. Do a work of restoring those who have strayed. Do a work of reviving and lighting a fire in those who are devoted to you. Fill me with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me to say only what you want said. Nothing more, nothing less. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now, this passage comes at the end of the thousand year reign of Jesus, just before the New Jerusalem comes down, next chapter, next week. And in this, we're given a picture of the final judgment. And it goes to great pains. We'll talk about this more, but it goes to great pains to show all of the world, all of the dead, are standing here. Right? So no one escapes this judgment. No one who rejected Jesus escapes this place. They are all here. On this day, and this passage tells us four facts about judgment, what happens. One, God's glory is revealed, which sounds strange. God's glory is revealed in judgment, but, but that's what we see here. We're told several things in verse 11 about the throne that we see at judgment. And each of the things revealed about the throne reveals something about the glory of the God who sets upon The throne first we're told it's a great throne being a great throne means it's a greater throne than any before it it is a great throne of judgment it is greater than any judiciary that ever has existed on the earth it is greater because the sovereign ruler of the universe is the one who passes judgment from this throne the one who passes judgment on this throne. His judgments are final, they are ultimate, they are eternal. They cannot be appealed, they cannot be overturned. There is no loophole or higher court one can go to. It is a white throne. Most commentators agree the whiteness represents the purity, the holiness, the righteousness of the judge sitting on the throne. The judge unbelievers stand before on this day will make no mistakes in judgment. He will not favor one group over another. His judgment will be according to his nature, which is pure, righteous, holy, and just. And it is God's throne. God himself sits on the throne. Now, hold your finger here because we're not going to spend time, but look quickly at Revelation 4. We've seen this before in our study, but I want to read this again to kind of get a picture of the throne that we're seeing. What... what, what, What the unbeliever will see as they stand before this throne. Revelation 4 and 2. Immediately I was in the spirit. and Behold a throne was standing in heaven. And someone was sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting on the throne. Was like a jasper and a sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne. Like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting. Clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. And out from the throne came flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps, fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass and like crystal. And in the center around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes and in front and behind. It goes on and say, they cry out, do not cease to cry out, holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Go back and turn back. This is the image of the throne. This is what the person stands before So the great white throne, it will work together to cause the person standing before God in judgment to realize the greatness and the glory of God. And here's why this is important. Arrogant people in our day, you've probably heard it or you've read it as I have, say things like, well... If there is a God and I stand before Him in judgment, I'm gonna be like, well God, what about this or what about that? Who do you think you are judging me? And they, and they say it and they think they sound so tough and so bold, but they're arrogant and ignorant because as they stand before this God and they see His glory, there will be no boasting. There will be no God what about. There will be the terrible fear of standing before a just judge and knowing you deserve the judgment that is to come. Those who stand before this judge on this day, their mouths will be stopped in fright and terror at the greatness of the God standing before them. So God's glory is revealed. Second, God's justice prevails. Verse 12, the first part of verse 12, it said, I saw the, the dead, the great and the small standing before God. So John goes to, to great lengths to tell us that everyone stands before God, right? So Revelation 12 or 20 and 12, dead, great and small standing before him. The great, the great refers to those who would be raving lunatics, who conquered nations and Did many horrific wicked acts. It will include world leaders. Great businessmen. The rich and the famous. Nobel Prize winner. And everyone who has attained some measure of greatness in this life. At the expense of knowing Jesus Christ as their Savior. But it won't just be the great. I saw the dead. The great and the small. The small standing before judgment means ordinary people. These are not raving lunatics who've conquered nations and killed millions. These are ordinary, everyday, common people who rejected Jesus and His rule and His salvation in their lives. They may well have lived basically moral lives. They may have only committed the kind of small sin society says is acceptable and understandable. Maybe they were only selfish, or maybe they were just chronic complainers, or maybe they just gossiped, or maybe they just cheated on their taxes, or maybe they were just occasionally sexually immoral. Maybe they just kind of lied sometimes. They did that at the expense of repenting and believing upon Jesus. And so they, too, stand before the great white throne of judgment. If you drop down to verse 13, it says the sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And this is the picture of basically, it's going to what it's showing is there is no escape from the great white throne of judgment. right? This isn't people who are alive at the time this happens. Because it's talking about those who are dead. The dead it's talking about are not just the dead who died in the tribulation period. It's talking about the dead of all times. Every person who has ever lived, who rejected Jesus and the salvation he offers, will stand In this place. They will stand in this place if they died a thousand years ago. They will stand in this place if they die a thousand years from now. They will stand in this place if their bodies are buried in the cemetery. They will stand in this place if their bodies were burned up and there was nothing left. Nothing saves in this day and prevents the judgment other than Jesus. God's justice prevails in this day because no unbeliever escapes. The pure judgment of God. Now, it is critical for us to understand no unbeliever escapes. It's critical for us as believers particularly. Because while we all know this, we all also have groups of people we know, probably love and care about. And they are not believers. They are not people who live for Jesus and we convince ourselves for one reason or another, they will escape this day apart from Jesus and we must know they will not. We must be certain that we understand. This is all people who reject Jesus and the salvation he offers. We cannot allow ourselves to deceive ourselves into believing some people escape apart from Jesus. None do. None do. Thirdly, God's standards are upheld. The dead stand before the throne. The books are opened. Another book is opened, which is the book of life and the dead are judged From the things which are written in the book according to their deeds. Verse 13. The dead who are giving up. And they are judged according. Each one of them according to their deeds. So in this day of judgment. There is. I guess you could say. If you looked at this as a court case. I think what we find. Is this is. The case against them. Being presented. It's not just they stand before God and God says in a way they don't know you're going to hell because I didn't like you. Instead they stand before God in judgment and books are opened. It kind of talks about at least three books. My understanding is it works like this. There is the Bible. There is the book of their deeds because it talks about judged by their deeds. and Then there is the book of life. So what happens is these books are opened. The person is standing there before Almighty God. And again, this is my understanding. The books of the deeds are read first. Here are the things you did in your life. Here are the thoughts you had. Here's the attitude you demonstrated. Here's the way you acted. Here's the way you reacted. These are your values. These were your priorities. These, this is how you lived your life day in and day out. This is the things you did. But that's not going to justify the person. But it's not going to be they're going to hear that and God's going to go, wow, you were a really great person. You, you bypass. Because after the deeds are read, what then is going to be read is the word of God. Oh, you, you, you did this. You, you committed adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Oh, you, you idolized this, this activity and, and you devoted your life to it. You shall have no gods before me. Oh, you lived a selfish, self-centered life. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Oh, you were sexually immoral. Be holy as I am holy. You lied. No liars will have their part in the lake of fire. All liars will have their part in the lake of fire. And over and over again, the deeds of their life are going to be read and what they are going to declare and what they are going to reveal and prove is that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The reading of their deeds, the reading of the book of the word. Do not justify them in any way. Instead, it reveals the justness and the righteousness of the judgment against them. And many in our day would push back and say, well, All the things you listed, all the things we could say about an unbeliever who stands before him and has those sins, these things are also true about disciples of Jesus. They have those same sort of things that had them in their lives. And this is true. Certainly, every disciple of Jesus has sinned prior to coming to Jesus and being saved. Some probably even sinned in very dramatic ways. Every disciple of Jesus also sinned after coming to Jesus and being saved. Therefore, according to the unbeliever's logic, disciples of Jesus they are no different from the unbeliever, and therefore just as deserving as God's judgment as an unbeliever is. Now, as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, our initial reaction is to say, "No, no, that's not true." But here's the kicker: it is true. We are just as worthy of judgment. We are just as deserving as the unbeliever. Our goodness, our adherence to the word does not what separates us from the one standing before judgment on this day. What separates those who are saved from this day and those who face this day is Jesus alone specifically faith in Jesus alone through faith in Jesus the penalty for our sins has been paid and we have been given the righteousness of Christ through this faith and there is no condemnation for us because of Christ See, disciples of Jesus don't escape judgment because they come to church or because they live moral lives or because they're kind or or any other good thing they do. Disciples of Jesus escape judgment because of Jesus and Jesus alone. There are only two paths for eternity with Jesus or without Jesus. And that's what makes the difference. That's the part, that's the point the book is making when it talks about the book of life in verse 12. Another is the book of life. The book of life is sometimes referred to as the Lamb's book of life. Old and New Testaments refer to God having a book containing the names of those who are his people or who, or who have been saved. You can find some references to this in like Exodus thirty-two, thirty-two, Daniel 12, 1, Philippians 4, 3, Hebrews 12 and 23. These these verses and the one here in Revelation 20 give us a picture of God writing someone's name down in a book in heaven on the day they are saved. could even say maybe on the exact date and time they were saved. It's a perfectly accurate record of all those who have been born again. And so there will be, here are the deeds. Here's the word. The judgment is just. Is your name here? Is your name here? And then they go down the list. And if the name is not there, then they are cast to the lake of fire. The person's name not being in the book of life indicates they never repented of their sins and they never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. The books being read provide a twofold judgment. For people standing before the great white throne. First it demonstrates they deserve God's judgment. Because they have sinned. And the wages of sin is death. Second their name not being in the book of life. Shows they have rejected the one and only Savior. Who could have spared them from this judgment. And these provide an absolute standard of judgment. For every person standing before the great white throne. Every person will be judged by those two things. Here's your life. Here's the word. Is your name here? And it won't matter if you were baptized, if your name's not here. It won't matter if you prayed a prayer, if your name's not here. What matters is is Jesus is your name in the book. God's glory is revealed, at judgment God's justice prevails, God's standards are upheld, and then finally God's word is true. Verse 14 and 15 it says Then death and Hades were thrown to the lake of fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he is thrown to the lake of fire. Again, I, I point out the thrown to the lake of fire because their names were not in the book The point of this is to remind us Jesus is the big deal, not morality, not religion. Jesus. More than anything else, what matters in this life and on this day is what a person believes about Jesus and how they responded to that truth. Those who respond to the truth of who Jesus is, they repent and they believe upon Jesus and they are then saved from this day of judgment because He took their penalty on the cross. He paid hell for them on the cross. His righteousness has been given to them and there is no condemnation for them because of Jesus. But no person who has not repented and believed Regardless of how moral they were, regardless of what deeds they did, regardless of anything else, no person apart from Jesus will have their name in the book of life. They will be found to be sinners, rebels, and rejectors of the one salvation, the one place where they could be saved, the Lord Jesus Christ. I was going to have us turn and look at Luke 16, 19 through 31 to talk about a bitter picture of hell. Talk about God's word is true, but I don't want to do that. We're going to have time. Instead, I just want to share a couple of quick truths about that, about what it reveals about hell in that passage for us to, to take to heart. Go read that passage later. First, when you look at that passage, what it reveals to us is hell is, is conscious torment. Right? So the story, Luke sixteen nineteen to 31 if you're not familiar with it. There's a, a poor man named Lazarus who lives at the gate of a rich man who is unnamed. And Lazarus has sores and he's miserable and he, he longs to eat the scraps that come from the rich man's table. And the rich man apparently doesn't do that. Lazarus dies. And is carried by the angels to, to Abraham's bosom, to paradise. The rich man also dies. It says, and it just says he went to hell. And it says while he was in hell, he looked up and he saw Lazarus at Abraham's side, and he cried out for mercy, for mercy. The point in this part is he was alive. This is not. Eternal destruction, and you cease to exist. This is eternal conscious torment for sinning against the Creator of all things. We can say that seems extreme. And in some ways, I would agree. There are parts in my suffer I think that's the case. Then I think again about what we're told about God. We're told God was self-existent. He had no needs, and He had no lack, and He had no nothing that wasn't provided. But He, He of His own choices, of His own heart, of His own desire, He created. This world and all there is. He, he created people in his own image. He, he formed a man. He, he scooped up dirt. And he formed a man out of that. And he breathed the breath of life into him. And he gave him a place to live. And he gave him a purpose for his life. And he came and he, he walked with him in the cool of the day. And he was he had this near perfect communion with the great creator God who speaks worlds into existence. And this creature from the dirt had one rule. Do not eat of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. And in a moment he said to God, I will do whatever I want to do. Can you imagine the audacity? A creature of dirt telling the glorious God you will not rule over me. Well, then when it gets to us, guess what? We're descendants of that creature of dirt. And while we inherited his sin nature, we too have said to God, You will not rule over me. Every time we have known God has said, You shall do this. And we said, Oh, no, I shall not do this. We have shaken our fist at the great and glorious creator and said, Me! flesh and blood, creature of dirt, you won't rule over me. Every time, that's what we're doing. Every time we know God has said, you shall do this, and we said, oh, I shall not. We're shaking our fist at the Creator God, the glorious God of the Bible, and we're saying, you will not rule over my life. And a sin that grievous, it most definitely... Is worthy of the utmost punishment. Secondly it tells us. Hell is forever. The rich man cried out. And he said father Abraham. Send Lazarus. To dip his finger in water. And drop it on my tongue. Because I am tormented. In this heat. And Abraham said to him that. Can't happen. You made your choices in life. You're there. Lazarus made his choices in life. He's here. And besides this. There is a great gulf fixed. So no one can go from here. To there. Or from there to here. And once we die. It's fixed. Our choice in life. Is finalized. A person's lifelong decision to receive Jesus or a person's lifelong decision to reject Jesus is finalized at death. People cannot wait until they die and enter into eternity and then call upon Jesus and be saved. It will be too late. Their choice has been finalized the judgment will be made if they chose in this life to reject jesus then they choose in the next life to live without jesus if in this life they choose to reject the sacrifice of jesus for the payment for their sins then they choose in eternity to pay the penalty for their own sins for all of eternity once people end up in hell there is no getting out. Now, let me say this quickly. Our minds sometimes we think of this. It's forever. There's no getting out. We think that's cruel also. Because in our minds, we imagine people in hell crying out for mercy. Be merciful, God. Be merciful to me. But that's not what we find. We've seen in the book of Revelation as God's judgment falls and the people recognize it is the judgment of God. What do they do? Do they say, oh, God, forgive us, forgive us for our sins, forgive us for what we've done. Oh, we believe, oh, God, have mercy. They don't. It says in Revelation 16, and the people blasphemed God because the plague of hell, because the hellstone of plague was extremely severe. The people in hell now are not crying out for mercy. Do you know what they're still doing? They're still shaking their fists at God. They're still saying, who are you to judge me? They are still crying out in rebellion. And those who eventually die and go to hell will not cry out for mercy. They will cry out in rebellion as well. They will stay in punishment forever Because the rebellion stays forever. Hell is not a pleasant topic. These aren't happy thoughts. That are going to leave us leaving the church today. With a song on our lips and a bounce in our steps. But the unpleasantness of hell does not change the truth about hell. The truths about hell as we've seen. And as presented in God's word. Hell is real. Hell is eternal. Hell is punishment. Hell is inevitable if you reject Christ. Hell is inescapable once you're there. But hell is avoidable if you will repent and believe in Jesus. And so the key truth I want to leave us with today is the truth about Jesus. Jesus alone saves us from the judgment to come. If you have never personally repented of your sins and believed in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you are not saved. And what we have looked at in this judgment is your future as it stands right now. And your greatest need, therefore, is to repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance is to recognize God is right about the wickedness of our sins and our lack of righteousness. Standard human American philosophy says, my sin is not that bad and I'm a pretty good person all by myself. Repentance says, that's not true at all. God is true. My sin is horrific. God is true. I am unrighteous. This recognition about God being right and us being wrong leads us then to turn to God away from sin, seeking God's forgiveness and Jesus's righteousness. This turning is critical, right? You, you cannot, you cannot sit here and say, man, gosh, that sounds horrible. I don't want to go to hell. Jesus, save me. And then go right back into your sin, never intending to turn from it. You are not saved if that's what you do. You must turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. There is, in some way, think of it as renouncing. In repentance, we renounce the former way of life. So that we can embrace a new way of life through Jesus. There is no repentance without this turning, without this renouncing, and without this embracing. Repentance is fueled by our faith in Jesus. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin, and they cannot be separated without destroying both. Now, faith is not meant in a general way. I believe in God. There are people in hell right now who lived and died and believed in God. Belief in God will not save you from the judgment to come. Well, I believe there was a guy named Jesus who lived and died and probably rose again. Belief that there was probably a guy named Jesus who lived and died and rose again will not save you from the judgment to come. The faith that saves is a faith that is in Jesus alone, his life alone, his death alone, and his resurrection alone. Faith that saves requires us to let go of self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. It requires us to say, I cannot save myself. Only Jesus can save me. But we have to completely let go of our self-righteousness, completely let go of our self-sufficiency. If we don't, it will destroy us. There's a story about a. A man who was during the, just after the Civil War period, and he was traveling to do business on a ship. And he had a chest that had his, basically his family's fortune that he was going to invest somewhere and try to help his family for the future. The ship sank, and he was holding onto his chest filled with gold in the water, which made it difficult to stay afloat. And a boat came by to save him. And there was room for a person, but not room for a person and a chest of gold. And they told him, you have to let go of your chest of gold and we will lift you up and we will put you in the boat. And he said, no, this is this is everything for our family. This is our our all that we have. If this is lost, we lose everything. And they said, if you don't let go of the chest, you will lose everything. And you will die. He refused to let go of the gold. And he drowned with his treasure. That's a great picture. The chest of gold is our self-righteousness. I did it. I can earn it. I can fix myself. It is our self-sufficiency. I'm good enough. I'm, I'm able. And what Jesus says is, you let go of your chest of gold and you reach out to me and I will grab you and lift you up out of the flames of judgment and I will save you. And if we're not willing to let go of that chest of gold and let our self-sufficiency and our self-righteousness sink to the depths, then that chest of gold will absolutely lead us to destruction and judgment in the days to come. God will not share His glory with another. And He saves us in part for His glory. 1 Corinthians 1 tells us that all of our glory for our salvation goes to Him. There's not a one of us who will stand before Jesus on judgment day, save and escape and go into heaven and say, we did it, Jesus, me and you. You got me over the hump, but I carried it over. You didn't have to lift me that far because I was a pretty good guy to begin with. No one who thinks they had a part in their salvation like that will be there on that day. They will be here on that day. Faith in Jesus means we have to let go of that chest of gold and grab only on to him so he can lift us up out of the coming flames of judgment and he can save us. Repentance and faith. These are the responses to the message of the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection. These are individual responses, meaning each of us must make this decision ourselves No one can make this for another. I can't make this for you. You can't make this for me. I can't make this for my children. We can't make this for another human being. We can only make it for ourselves. You must be the one to repent. You must be the one to believe. You must be the one to let go of your self-righteousness. You must be the one to drop your chest of gold and grab on to Jesus. And if you have never let go of your chest of gold and grabbed on to Jesus... I urge you today, come to Jesus and be saved. Repent, believe on Jesus and be saved. Drop your chest of gold and let Jesus lift you up so that judgment will not be your destruction in your future. If you are here today and you are saved, you have committed your life to Christ and this passage reminds us the terrible need of the world around us. It ought to stir our hearts until we will not rest, until we have tried telling every unbelieving we person, every unbelieving person we know about the salvation found in Jesus alone. It ought to move us to come before the Lord in prayer and cry out for the souls of our friends, our neighbors, our loved ones who need Jesus. Surely our hearts are not so hard we are not moved the thought of the unbelievers we know heading to hell surely our eyes are not so clouded over we think these people we care about will be the exception and they will get to heaven apart from jesus we too must come to jesus today and cry out to him to do what only he can do in the lives of those we know and i'll close with these words from jonathan edwards his sermon sinners in the hands of an angry god the pit is prepared the fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do rage and glow. The glittering sword is wet and held over them. The pit has opened her mouth under them. Oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger. I'm going to pray. The altars will be open if you want to come to the altars and pray. You can pray where you are. The need in this moment is for all of us to be praying. Let's stand. If you have not repented and believed, cry out to Jesus in this moment. And if you have, you cry out to Jesus on behalf of another. Father, we love you. The word we've looked at today is hard, but true. Let it weigh on our hearts and our souls the way it ought to. For those that have not repented of their sins and believed in Jesus, Father, let this be the forefront of their minds. But Lord, not just the horrors of hell, but the salvation of Jesus. Let them know this judgment is real, but there is a Savior. If they would, but let go of their chest of gold, which is not gold anyway. It's fool's gold. And let them grab on to Jesus through repentance and faith. Father, for those that have repented and believed and. Live for Jesus. Oh, let the word we've touched today, we've looked at today, stir our hearts, break our hearts, move us to cry out more desperately, more fervently, more consistently for the salvation of others. Oh, God, have your way in each of our hearts today. We ask in Jesus name. Amen.